find our seats and we'll get going here today. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. If you're new here, uh, we want to say a specific welcome. We'd love to get to know you. I'm Zach, one of the pastors here at the Vine. I'd love to meet you if you're new here at the church. Uh, I don't usually preach in a t-shirt, but we are promoting, I'm a billboard today, uh, we're promoting our new t-shirts. So these are connected to our Go campaign, which is uh, the building of a new facility. You can see the information in the back. Uh, just as a side note, forget the phase one poster. Scott, why don't you just take that poster down? We don't need phase one anymore, because we're doing both phases at once. And uh, yeah, say goodbye to phase one. Uh, so we're just doing phase two, so that's the poster you should be looking at. And um, man, so many people are hard at work uh, through prayer, through giving, through actual manual labor. And so these t-shirts represent that. And so thanks to Justin. Justin, wave your hand there. Give Justin a hug. He loves hugs. <laughs> Give Justin a hug after, uh, after the service because he is the, the magnificent artist that, that made these shirts. So um, does anybody know like what is going on here? So we've got, we've got the website down here. And we've got the vine. Does anybody know what's going on here? Anybody? Anybody got any ideas? If you were in the first service, don't give it away. Transition. No, but good idea. <laughs> hey, I appreciate the boldness, Marie. That's good. It's actually a face. So we've got the eyes and the nose and the mouth and the bushy eyebrows here. And the curls here, and I'm told that this is actually Laurel's face. So if you want to know what our church is all about, it's basically the vine, and then Laurel, it's all about Laurel. <laughs> That's what we want you all to remember. Um, no, it's representative of just us being together and, and the vine and whatever other symbolism you want to attach to it. Just ask Justin. Okay, so um, get a t-shirt, info at the end of the service, t-shirts in the back, as you're leaving, um, we got some good work to do today, so let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're new here, we've been uh, working our way through uh, the book of 1 Peter, and today we are at chapter 3. Now, uh, like I said the last couple weeks, we've been in a bit of a mini-series, so the mini-series that we've been under is all about what does it mean to, be, to live a life of, of submission, and what's the whole point of living a life of submission? What purpose could that possibly serve? And so what we need to remember is everything that we've said for the last three weeks and next week and the week after that is under the heading of verse 12. And we rehearsed this last week. Let's rehearse it again. It's always important for us to remember that we always read our Bibles in context. So what's the context? The context is chapter 2, verse 12. So turn there. Chapter 2, verse 12. Peter says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, honorable. Okay? So how you carry yourself. It should be honorable. It shouldn't be easy to talk down about this kind of conduct. It shouldn't be easy to just brush it aside as meaningless. No, it should be honorable. When you think of the word honorable, what, does, what comes to mind? Whatever it is that comes to mind... That's probably how we're supposed to carry ourselves, okay? So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Well, why? Great question. Peter answers, why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
And what that means is, I want you to keep your conduct honorable because there's people that look at you as Christians and go, that's crazy. But some of those people are going to hear the word of the gospel. God's going to visit them through the preaching of God's word in the gospel. And when they hear and he visits them through the preaching of God's word, they're going to look at your life and go, I used to say it was evil, but now I wonder about it because it's very, very different. And there's something about it that I know is really beautiful and unique and attractive. And that might be a means by which what they've heard connects to what they see and they become Christians, okay? So Peter's whole agenda here is a missional agenda. The way you live your life is a big deal. And then he goes on to define what does honorable conduct look like? And then he goes and starts with the government. How do you have honorable conduct in reference to the ruling authorities of the land? And then he talks about servants and slaves and masters. And we talked about that last week. If you were gone, I would encourage you to listen to it. But in our modern context, it probably means employers and employees. How do you conduct yourself with honorable conduct in reference to employers and employees? And now today he turns to, today and next week, he turns to talk about the marriage, the family. And this week we're going to focus on wives, and next week we're going to focus on, Michael McKittrick's going to lead us in a great text on what does that mean for husbands. So let me just start with this. What, what if you're a single woman here today? What's, what's in it for me? Um, well, a couple thoughts. Number one you might not always be single, and so maybe this is just a quick note-taking for the future, okay? But also, I don't want you to define yourself primarily as a single woman. The Bible gives us just a litany of ways to identify ourselves. And if your knee-jerk is, I'm single, and that's the first, when someone asks you, who are you, and you say, well, I'm single, that's the first thing that comes to mind, my concern is that that is um, maybe something that's associated with isolation, and being alone. But what we want to remind you of this morning is there's other powerful identity markers that I think will really help you identify yourself in a way that's really going to spur you on to love and good deeds. And what that is is, well, I'm single, but I'm not single, meaning I'm not alone. Because the Bible says I'm a daughter. The Bible says I'm a sister. So I have a family of God God is my father, brothers and sisters in the church, and that's my primary identity. How about that? That my primary identity is not I'm single, even though that might be true, but my primary identity is I'm a daughter, God is my father, and I'm a sister. So what does that mean? That means I'm not isolated. That doesn't mean I'm alone. It means I'm connected. It means I'm a member of the family. And when I primarily identify myself that way, I can read a, a text like we're going to read today and go, well, I'm single, but guess what? I've got something to offer. Because i got sisters that might need to hear this. i got sisters that might need to grow in this. And I can come alongside them and help them, okay? So let's keep these things in mind, even if, if we're single here today, all right? So here's the big point for today that we're going to see traced through this whole text, okay? This is what Peter's getting at. He wants wives in the first century, what is, uh, what is, what is modern-day Turkey, house churches all over that part of the world ruled by the Roman Empire. He wants wives in that context to hear this, and he wants wives in Mass in 2017 to hear this. Wives, consider the evangelistic power 
of respectful and pure conduct. Wives, consider the evangelistic power of respectful and pure conduct in marriage. So let's see this point play itself out in the text, okay? Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay, so let's review again. One of the main objectives of this book that Peter's writing to these Christians is this. Guys, you got to be aware that there's a lot of unbelievers watching you. And since that's the case, and since you're a persecuted minority in this broader culture, your actions have to match your words. If your talk doesn't match your walk, there's no hope for missional impact in light of who you are and where you are. Okay? So we really got to have our talk match our walk. So I'm going to emphasize right now your conduct, your walk. Now, that's not at the, at the dismissing of your talk. We're just going to talk about your walk right now. You with me? So conduct yourselves honorably. And so then at the end of verse 2, when speaking about wives, we see Peter has this in mind. See, when they see your, well, it says the word conduct twice. One without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. So we know that's on Peter's mind here, how you carry yourself, your conduct. Now, in this specific case, Who's he talking about? Who, who's watching? Who's the seeing? The seeing is unbelieving husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, be subject, let's start over. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, okay, so we've got unbelieving husbands here. What are they going to see? They be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. They're going to see a wife that loves God. So the they is unbelieving husbands, and they're seeing something. They're seeing respectful and pure conduct, right? Your behavior's a big deal. How you carry yourself's a big deal. So let's, let's break this down. Likewise, first word. So in the same way as we've always already read, remember back these last couple sermons, in the, in the same way as, as we have a, a process and, and, and just a, a way we carry ourselves that's submissive, in the same way that we maybe submit to government, submit to an employer, wives, be subject to your husbands. Wives, follow your husband's lead as long as it doesn't lead to sin. Wives, don't, don't always have a posture of resistance. Wives, affirm his leadership in the way that you talk to him and talk about him. Now, let's just be honest. This text is hard on a variety of levels, is it not? Like There's so many questions, potential objections. What about this? What about this? What about this scenario? And I wish I had time this morning to just lay out a Genesis to Revelation type theology of marriage. We don't have time for that. And it's not the point of the text here. But let me just say this, just so we can kind of all be on the same page here, hopefully. Um, Number one, the Bible is very clear. Husbands and wives are equal. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. The Bible doesn't say he just created men in his image. It doesn't say he just created women in his image. No, he he said, I created them both in my image. And that, the image God, is, is the foundation 
for value. Okay? The image of God is the reason why we are always going to resist racial discrimination. Because people of all shapes and sizes and colors have the image of God. So we don't discriminate. That, that's, that's spitting on that which God says, I love, I made, I created for my glory. That's the reason why we always resist the taking of the unborn life. Because the unborn is the image of God. Right? We can't trample on that which God says is beautiful, male or female. So, There's no question biblically that male and female are equal in God's eyes in terms of value, right? But in addition to this view of value based on the whole of the Bible, we know that God has ordained specific roles based on gender for husbands and wives in marriage. Now, there's a lot that needs to be said to support that that I don't have time for today. But here's just simply a short version of what the Bible teaches. Husbands are to lead their wives by laying down their lives for them. Let me say that again, husbands, men. Husbands are to lead their wives by laying down their lives for them. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like Jesus on a cross. That's leadership. That's what we should always be thinking of. But there's so many other pictures. Think of Jesus with his disciples, and and none of these guys are willing to do the menial task of washing the feet of of, of dusty and dirty people that walk around on first century roads, and typically there would be a servant that would do that. Well, they they were poor people by and large. They didn't have a servant to wash feet, and so who's going to do it? Because customarily, it has to be done before we eat supper. And so Jesus says, I'm willing. No one's questioning that he's the leader. But the leader's the one who serves. And so, you know what godly leadership looks like, men? It looks like washing the feet of your wife. It looks like taking the the towel and the basin and, and making clean that which is dirty and doing that which the world looks at and goes, you're going to really stoop to that level? And you say, yeah, I love her this much. I'll stoop to any level. Because I know that Jesus calls me to lead by serving, not by domineering. So that's how, why, now there's no question about who the leader is. It's just that what type of leadership is it? And then, and then wives are called to affirm and submit to this leadership as his God-ordained helpmate. Now, There's so much we could say to unpack that this morning that I won't do. If you want to talk about that, we're here. I'm here. Your elders are here. Um, I'm always here after the sermon. You can hit me up on the the sermon discussion channel on Slack. Love to do that, okay? Because I know there's so many things here that are hard for us because of our culture and just because of questions we have in light of these things, okay? Now, on the topic of submission or being subject, like it says there, What's the main emotion there oftentimes that, that we feel that kind of comes to the surface when we hear this language? For me, it's fear of a loss of power. Just fear of a loss of power, right? We fear abuse. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about this text is it, 
actually points to the opposite. It points to a redefinition of power that's actually really, really beautiful, all right? And again, that's our big point for today. Wives, consider the evangelistic power of respectful and pure conduct in marriage. Now, let's look at the flow of thought here in this text. Let's look at the flow of thought. When it comes to power, real, valuable, lasting, and beautiful kind of power, it says this, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, Why? Well, there's a reason here. He's not just saying this for the fun of it. He's got a reason. Well, it comes after the words, so that. So that, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So be subject to your husbands, so that, so what? So that you can have power in evangelism. Power in mission. See, see, what he's saying is your submission in marriage and how you carry yourself in marriage gives you much evangelistic power, right? Because that's what's immediately in view in this text, right? A husband who doesn't believe. And, and what Peter's saying is you've got the chance, you've got the power to win him to Christ. How? Through the power of living a life to the glory of God. Wives, how you carry yourself in respect to your husband, with respect to your husband, is powerful. See, the world doesn't define it this way, but submission can be a form of amazing power. Now, and now, now just listen. Is this not consistent with the message of the gospel? That submission is a form of amazing power? Jesus himself submitted himself to the government. Jesus himself submitted himself to to, 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 to the will of the Father. And why? Because this was the greatest power to save that the world has ever seen. You with me? See, the world defines power as ultimate self-determination, all-the-time autonomous-type authority. But the Bible sometimes defines it very differently. Power can show up in different ways. And God really values other types of power. The power of perseverance. The power of evangelism through beautiful conduct. The power of restraint when lashing out might feel better. So the point here for wives is you don't have to fear a loss of power in submission to your husbands, even if they're unbelievers. Why? Because you've got the true power of God working through you. It's God's power that you have as you submit to him. And he's working through you to show that submissive godliness can bring about amazing power, the power to maybe even convert an unbelieving husband. And if you get that, that's so much better than fearing the loss of some type of worldly power. See, see, the, see the culture, the world is so worked up about a loss of rights. But sometimes, just like Jesus, it's through submission that true power can be seen. That's mysterious. That takes wisdom. But it can be amazingly powerful. Jesus himself submitted himself so that power could shine through. Never forget that. And Peter's saying something similar to wives. There's a type of submission that's faithful to endure. And this, this kind of patience can be truly God's work through you. 
So I think that's clear. But let me say what I don't mean. And tragically, this kind of text has been used um, for the perpetual abuse of women in the past. We're not calling you women wives to patiently endure abuse from your husband. If your husband's constantly looking at porn, if he's physically rough with you, to a small degree or to a large degree, it doesn't matter. If he berates you in private and in public everyone thinks everything's all good, but you know in in private there's a different story, a different narrative. God does not call you to be submissive to that. You can still be submissive to him and also address his sin. Those things are not at odds, okay? See, God's will for you is to be loving, and it's never loving to enable a man in his sin, okay? What's truly loving and godly is to confront him in his sin in a way that's respectful and truthful. And and if he exhibits a hard heart, when those times come, man, don't be afraid to ask for help. And, and this is one area where eldership can serve you. Now, if this is an extreme example, you need to get legal help, okay? Um, but it may, sometimes you're just in a scenario where you're not even really sure. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Like, if any of you wives feel like you're stuck in an abusive situation with a husband who has a hard heart and will not listen, man, just, just know that your elders want to protect you. Your elders want to love you. Your elders want to be an advocate for you if your husband will not. And that might sound like a real extreme scenario. It's not. Because anybody who's a member at this church has signed a covenant of fellowship that says, If I'm out of line, I want that to be addressed, right? And so we're all in agreement. This is not some big deal. It it is a big deal if that's happening, but the fact of calling him out and asking for help, that's not a big deal. That's just normal. That's how the family of God should operate, okay? So just know that you don't have to suffer in silence if that's you, but we're here to serve you. And our our membership covenant implies that. We're called to hold each other accountable, okay? Now, on the flip side of that, look at verse 2. Ladies, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I know so many women in this church that are doing a phenomenal job at this. You honor your husband well. You affirm his leadership. He's a better man because you're such a great wife. But I think there's probably some examples where wives in here can grow in this. There's probably room for all to grow in this. You know, now, is there a place for repentance here? Sometimes you might not even be sure. And your communication right now might not be at that level where you can really have honest talks about this. So maybe today's the day to start. Okay? And ladies, listen to me. Because the gospel is true, you got nothing to hide. you got nothing to prove. you got nothing to defend. You got nothing to lose. Because Jesus knows it all. God knows it all. You got nothing to lose because you've gained it all in the gospel, all the things that you would ever need. You got nothing to defend because Jesus is your defender. 
and you got nothing to prove because Jesus has proved it all for you and given it to you as a gift. So go for it. Just ask your husband. Maybe today as you're leaving, in the car on the way home, just ask him, how do you feel like I'm doing in this area of respectful and pure conduct towards you? Just ask him. And then be open to asking for forgiveness. Now, now men, look at me. Listen, when she asks you, it's not like, well, how much time do you have? I got a list. Thanks for asking. No. And you don't come with the hammer. You come with gentleness, guys. You come with gentleness. Okay? Because she's laying herself out there, and you're going to respond with gentleness. Jesus-like gentleness. Okay? Now remember, all of this is, is what? Because healthy marriages look different. Wives that are healthy look different. Marriages that, that have the, the ability to resolve conflict and ask for forgiveness, man, that's unique in our world. And that has powerful missional um, power. That has pa- evangelistic power, right? Wives, consider the evangelistic power of respectful and pure conduct in marriage. The world is watching. What do they see? That's what Peter's getting at here today. And so what he does is he's like, all right, let's flush this out. Let's keep reading, okay? Verse 3. What does he mean by respectful and pure conduct? What does he mean? Well, here's what he means. He's like, ladies, women, wives, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry and the clothing you wear. Now, let me just stop here. If you have your hair braided this morning, you're not in sin, okay? We had a, I had a gal after the first service, she's like, I haven't braided my hair in 20 years, and today was the day. And like, oh, no. <laughs> um, there's something cultural going on here that we probably just don't understand. In this culture, that may have been a sign of flaunting or something, but we can see that the heart of the text is your hair, your jewelry, and your clothes, all this external stuff. Now, for us in our culture, it might be something different. It might be, I wear really tight clothes because I want to accentuate the appearance of my body and get attention from men or, or something. Now, there's lots and lots of um, hard and fast lines that, that people like to draw about what is modesty and what, what is not. That's a good conversation to have. I'm not here to draw those lines this morning, but I encourage that conversation. And we might all define that differently in some ways, but at least have the conversation. What is modesty, okay? That's not the point of the text, though, this morning. Here's the point. It shouldn't be all about your externals the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry and the, or the clothing you wear. But here's what it should be about. Let your adorning be the, or what you wear, be the, here's a metaphor, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Don't focus on the ex- external. I want you to focus on some inner realities. So uh, when we first moved here about six and a half years ago, we uh, got rid of our TV. And when we, in, our, in the old city where we lived, we had a, just a, a junky TV, so we got rid of it and just didn't buy a new one. And uh, that doesn't mean we didn't spend time with media. We did. We have a Netflix account. Um, but I spent probably two or three years being completely uh, oblivious to commercials, and I didn't watch any commercials because on Netflix you don't have commercials. And so we got a TV after about two or three years, just I think so I could watch sports. And, man, I, I, we, we started watching TV a little bit again, and I was just struck 
by how over-the-top our advertising is in reference to the female body. Because I've been, like, kind of out of that world for three years, and then it's always like, it's like, uh, you know, when you, when you haven't, when you've kind of detoxed from something, and then you enter back in, it just kind of hits you, like, in the face, and it's just like, whoa, I forgot how, like, full-on this assault is. We leverage the female body to sell things. All about the external. One of the main points of emphasis when it comes to marketing in our world today is the idolatry of the female body. And, and ladies, if you have a great body, you can get attention. That's the message. And if you can get attention, then you can get paid. And you can leverage your physical appearance to get what you want. You can get a man, you can get a job, you can get more money, whatever else. And by and large, the message of our culture is this. Ladies, focus on your body because that's the most important thing. And don't hear what I'm not saying. Like, God created our bodies. We don't diminish the value of our bodies because Genesis 1, God created it in his image. It's good. That's a whole other distortion throughout the history of Christianity that's saying the body's bad and all that is important is the spirit. That's false too. God loves our bodies because he made our bodies. So we want to value what he values. But, we take good things and make them into God things, and that's where the idolatry sends us all awry, right? God created your body. He loves your body. But the message that our culture preaches to us is a lie. It's just a straight-up lie. The culture says, adorn yourself with whatever it takes to submit to the qualities of beauty as we define beauty. And God says, don't do it. That's a lie. Don't believe the lie. That's not the way of value. That's not the way of blessing. So what does God say? He says, verse 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Let the thing that you're known for not be your external. Let the thing that you're known for not be a great body, first and foremost, but a great character, first and foremost. See, it's not easy to see. That's, it's a little hidden. See it there? You don't see it right away. You can't see into someone's heart. It takes, it takes time, but that's okay. It's okay to be patient. Because here's what God wants. God wants your adorning ladies, wives, to be what? To be him. He wants your adorning to be him. See, there's a certain type of clothing that doesn't wear out. I, I was just uh, working at the church the other day. And I've got a pair of work jeans that I'm kind of stingy with clothes. I hate going to the mall. I hate buying clothes. I don't know what it is. It's just weird about me. I just wear clothes till they're about ready to fall off. And, and so I have these, these jeans that rips everywhere, my work jeans. And one of the subcontractors, I just met him, introduced myself. And he's, the first thing he says is, dude, looks like it's time for some new jeans. And uh, he's right, right? Clothes wear out. But what Peter's saying is there's a certain type of clothing that never wears out. And that's Romans 13, 14. We're, we're called to clothe ourselves with Christ. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. May, may he be the thing that people see. You're wearing this Jesus clothing, and, and it never wears out, and people can see it, and they, and they say it's beautiful. The way you love people, the way you sacrifice for people, the way you lay down your life for people, the way you're generous with people, the way you forgive people, the way you show mercy to people. That's Jesus' clothing. 
So why is this important? Peter tells us why it's important. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable. See that word imperishable? Imperishable beauty. Jesus is saying, don't focus on your external because that stuff wears out. That stuff wears out. You know what's better than stuff that wears out? Stuff that doesn't wear out. Clothing yourself with me. That never wears out. And that's imperishable, and it's beautiful. Beauty that never fades. Because here, here's the tragic reality. I mean, we all know this, but let me just remind you. We all get fat and saggy one day. Like, that's just straight biblical. Our bodies are wasting away. It doesn't say fat and saggy, but it does say <laughs> that we're wasting away. And we know that's part of the process, okay? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be healthy. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to the gym. I'm not saying that you should, you should just, like, whatever, I'm going to eat Twinkies all day. I mean, that's, that's, that's abuse of the temple. God made your body. He loves it. So we don't abuse the temple. We don't abuse our bodies. But what are we primarily focusing on? What are we primarily focusing on? What's my desire? See, our physical bodies are wasting away. And, and Peter's saying, focus on that which doesn't waste away. The imperishable beauty. See, see, not to devalue our bodies by neglecting them or being completely unhealthy, but also we shouldn't be obsessed with our physical appearance like the world is. We're going to focus on what's imperishable. And what is it? Look at what it says. It says, here's what's beautiful. Imperishable beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. There's a kind of beauty that's imperishable. We're going to focus on that. And and Peter defines what that is. It's a quiet and gentle spirit. And and here's what's so cool. God says this is precious. This is precious. God loves a gentle and quiet spirit. And we should call precious what God says is precious. Precious. Now, if I, I told you um, I just got a new puppy, everybody loves a new puppy in my neighborhood. Dogs kind of rule, and everyone loves their dogs. They treat their dogs like kids, and, and so you get a new puppy, and everybody comes out, oh, the new puppy, and so we all love puppies. They're cute. What's not to love, right? And, and so if I get a new puppy, and I hand it to my friend, and my friend says, oh, can I, can I have your puppy because I want to drop kick it? It's like, what? Like, no, 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 no. This puppy obviously is very precious to me. Why would you drop kick my puppy? Well, that's what, what, what Peter's saying here. What God says is precious, we don't drop kick. We value what God values. We call precious what God says is precious. And what he says is precious for wives is a quiet and gentle spirit. Now, some of you immediately object, and my, my wife is one of those where she's like, I don't feel like I have a very quiet and gentle spirit. Like, where, where is this for me? Like, I am kind of type A, and I love to get things done, and if something's wrong, I want it righted. Like, is this, is this verse calling me to be a doormat? No, it's not. And here's what's so beautiful about this verse. The word gentle here is the same word in the Greek that is used for Jesus in the Gospels two times. So what Peter's saying here, ladies, is just we're calling you to be Christ-like. There's a gentleness that is a Jesus-type gentleness that, that, that God says, man, that's precious. When you carry yourself with a Jesus-like gentleness 
towards your husband. So how was Jesus gentle? Well, he wasn't always like nagging. He wasn't raging about things. He wasn't prone to outbursts of anger. He wasn't always resisting and upsetting God's authority structure. He was gentle. And this is the kind of beauty that never fades, wives. So all this draws us back to the main point that Peter has in mind. Being adorned with the inner realities of imperishable beauty through beautiful behavior is connected to his main point. Wives, consider the evangelistic power of respectful and pure conduct in marriage. If you're solely focused on external appearance, God will not look attractive to the unbelieving world or an unbelieving husband. See, over time, a godly character that he calls precious is going to make them wonder, what are you all about? See, if it's clear that all you care about is clothes and beauty products and constantly showing your body off or complaining about the body you don't have, that's not going to win anyone to Christ. Because they're just going to be like, well, you say you love Jesus, but clearly you're just running after the same things I am. So you can tack on a little Jesus if you want, but we both know we're running after the same things. That's not evangelistic power. Evangelistic power is, it's clear what your greatest treasure is. It's clear what your greatest treasure is. Does that mean you, you can't, like, wear makeup or you can't, you know, be into fashion or whatever? No, but ask yourself, what's my heart? What's my heart? What is my primary orientation? How much time do I spend thinking about fashion versus godliness? Or whatever it may be in your life, okay? There's, we're not going to draw hard and fast lines this morning, but it's, it's good for you to go home and ask yourself, what am I focused on, ladies? What am I focused on? And Peter closes this section with, with just a final kind of elaboration on what he means. Let's look at it. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. A lot we could say here. Let me just say one thing. I think the key phrase that Peter says is, this is how the holy women who hoped in God. Right? The key phrase is, who hoped in God. They were oriented on God and his promises, what he promises to do and to be for them in the future. It might not all be perfect right now, but I'm hoping in God. That creates a type of character. These type of women aren't focused on their physical appearance to be their savior, even though the, the, the world says, do it, it'll save you. It won't. These are, these are the kind of women that are not hoping in a husband to be their savior. The world might say, if you're single, you need a husband, your husband can be your savior. I mean, my word, I mean, look at the, 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 the lunacy of, of the bachelorette. That will, ladies... Finding the Bachelor won't save you, okay? I'm sorry. I know a lot of you like that show. But it's preaching a false message. So if you're going to watch that show, preach, the, preach it to yourself that this is false. I'm getting a little entertained, but this is false, okay? <laughs> These kind of women are not hoping in autonomous individuality to be their savior. Their hope is in God. Their hope is in God. 
He was their Savior. And that is the kind of thing that gives you power as God defines precious power. And what is it? It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through you to carry yourself in a way that's undeniably unique. So unique that people stand up and they, and they take notice. So wives, consider the evangelistic power of respectful and pure conduct in marriage. Because here's the deal. Your marriage just isn't about you. That's what's so important to remember. Your marriage just isn't about you. That's what Peter's saying. How you carry yourself in marriage has a ton to do with the mission of the church moving into the world for the sake of the glory of God, right? That's what Peter is commending. Let me close with this. Ladies, let me remind you. Let me remind you of the gospel this morning. This is a time when maybe many of you could feel condemnation because who has lived up to these things perfectly? None of you have, right? And that's not the point. Yes, you are a great sinner. And yes, you have a great Savior. So let's, let's take our eyes off of ourselves. Like this, there's no hope in this posture. All about me. But you know, when it, when it says, I'm going to be like Sarah and have my hope in God, that's when I take my eyes off myself and I place them on King Jesus, the cross and the empty tomb. And that's where I'm going to fixate. That's where I'm going to fixate. Okay, ladies? See, Jesus died for your sins. He died for your shortcomings. And as you remember the fact that forgiveness is yours, in the light of that, a new identity is yours, and that you're no longer defined by your sin, but by the righteousness of Jesus simply given to you as a gift, see, what happens then is that deepens your love for King Jesus. And this is then going to de deepen your desire to want to walk in the truths of 1 Peter 3, not as a slave, but as a child who loves their father. So let that fuel your marriage as you walk out of here today. Let that shape how you view your husband as you walk out of here today. It's going to be more of Jesus, less of me, more hope in God, less hope in the world. I'm going to clothe myself with him and him alone, and, and may that, ladies, be what you're known for, okay? And know that we love you. Let's pray. Father, as we pray every week, um, we believe, help our unbelief. Uh, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. So may you rule and reign um, through your grace and your mercy that is so near to us. May that win our hearts, change our hearts. Um, you are the vine, we are the branches. And Lord, we desire to be connected to you so that your branches can be beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen.